Good morning, everyone. And uh, we are looking into Mark's Gospel, and we are on page 1012 of the Bibles that you might be able to get your hands on right by you. Uh, we should have a title. There we go. We won't read it uh, right away, but we'll be reading it as we as we go through. Excuse me, my voice is a little bit kind of deeper than usual. But anyway, I think that's so for quite a few of us with the various bugs around at the moment. So as Louise said, we're back in Mark's Gospel. We did the the first half of Mark's Gospel like this time last year. And uh, I'm not going to go over all the kind of introduction to it, but uh, you may may remember from then, or if you really want to, you can look up about this time last year and what we were thinking about in Mark chapter 1. But the background is that this is uh, probably, almost certainly, the very first gospel to be written of the four we have in the New Testament. It was put together by Mark. That's why it's called Mark's Gospel, believe it or not. Uh, Mark appears in the Bible as somebody called John Mark, uh, and we read about him in different places. Not many, uh, but he's obviously a part of the disciples' kind of wider network. Um, Possibly his family uh, uh, was connected to to the disciples and to Jesus. He was particularly close to Peter, uh, the apostle Peter, uh, and uh, the, the disciple. And, and he is probably written uh, and begins to be distributed around the time that Peter was imprisoned. Peter was in Rome. He ended up in Rome. He led the church in Rome. And uh, he was uh, imprisoned and then uh, gave his life for Christ in the early 60s A.D., Um, And it's probably before Peter's death that that Mark has got the stuff together. He may have even had Peter uh, talking to him at the background as he went over all of the events. So Mark is with Peter in Rome, and and there's there's various external evidence that points to that. Um, Not a lot, but we are talking about, you know, 2,000 years ago in antiquity. So if you've got any documentary evidence, it's significant. Uh, And there are pointers to that uh, in in some of the, the documents that we have from that time. It's good news, actually, this thing, the gospel or the evangel, it begins with this phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, and, and that word gospel, it was, as we heard last time, a completely new word, good news. This was the first time any uh, book like this had been written. And when you read either any, any of the, gospel, the four gospels, it's almost like the, the, the early Christians invented a new literary form. Because it's kind of half biography, and it's, it's also teaching about Jesus. So it combines events and what he says and the kind of person he was and everything, and his impact on others. But it's kind of marked, it, it's a message in itself. The word gospel, or the word good news, the word evangel in, in Greek was, was a word that was known, as we saw last time. When it was used in the Roman world, when, a, when, in, when the government changed, people went out with evangel, with a message that the government had changed. It was an official notification. And this gospel, this book of Mark, is like that. It's a message. And this message of Mark's gospel, the message of Jesus, had been shared with people. By the time we get to this point in, in AD 60, the church is alive and growing. It's got from Jerusalem to Rome. People have believed in Jesus and have come to know him. Their lives have been changed through him. Uh, and, and as it were, Mark, 
before Peter dies and, and, and Luke and John and Matthew are doing similar things, kind of in the early days of the church, are getting it written down so that it can be passed on, so that we, hundreds of years later, can know what Jesus said, who he was, what he did, and we can hear God speaking to us through him. So we got to the end of the first half of Mark's gospel, uh, kind of got to the, the series finale, finale rather, of Mark, uh, the first half, with this kind of climax where Jesus asked the disciples, who are you? Or rather, who do you think I am, rather? Who do you think I am, he says to them. He's traveling around and he's up in a place uh, near um, Caesarea Philippi in the north of um, Palestine in the Galilean area. And it's up in that area, he says, who do people say that I am and who do you think that I am? And they say, or Peter sums it up for them saying, you're the Christ, you are the promised Messiah, you are the God, you are the king rather that God had promised You are the one God promised to send. They were expecting God to do this thing that he promised to the Israelites in the Old Testament and send this king. And Peter sums it up for the rest of them and says, you're the one, Jesus. We understand now you're the king. You're the Christ. That's what Christ means. You're the one that we're expecting. But that was just the beginning for them. Once they realized that, And even that was going to need a lot of kind of filtering into their hearts and minds and then into their lives. Once they realize that, once we realize that, the next question is, well, what does it mean to us? Well, so what? (laughs) If Jesus is the king, well, what's that got to do with anything? And that's kind of where we, we begin in the second half of Luke's gospel Luke, there's a, a glass of water there. Could I just, thank you. There's two up here, but I'm not sure. Are you using the upstairs one or the downstairs? Neither. Oh, okay. Well, I've got three glasses of water now. That's right. <laughs> if not, you, if Lulu, use a different one if you want. Um, bit of popular culture. Have you ever seen the show um, Undercover Boss? It's not, I've seen it a couple of times. Strangely, I associate it with being on holiday because it's one of those daytime TV shows, you know. Stay in a cottage or a caravan, turn the TV on while you're having breakfast. And that's the kind of show that comes up. Undercover Boss. What, what happens in Undercover Boss is that the CEO of a company disguises himself or herself as somebody else and goes undercover and works in the company. And then uh, they, they meet different people, they do different jobs, and they, they find out what's going on. And then at the end of the show, there's a reveal when you know, they, like, you know, Mission Impossible, not quite that sophisticated. You know, they peel off the, the mask or they take off their wig and they say, I'm the boss and I've been working with you uh, for the last, uh, whatever, few weeks and so on. And then at that point, usually the boss uh, says, uh, you know, she might say to the employee, well, um, I'm going to make these changes in the company. I've learned some things about how this company works and these changes need to happen. Or sometimes they've met someone and they realize that, that they're working really hard and they deserve a bonus, you know, or, or they should be doing a different job in, in the company. You know, the show is, is, is quite fun to see. But, you know, the changes. So, so there's a sequence. The boss is hidden and then there's a, re- a reveal and then there are changes that happen to people's lives as a result. But the changes aren't automatic, are they? 
I mean, the employee could say, well, thanks very much, but now I've met you, I'm out of here. I don't want to be part of your company anymore. Or, you know, they may not accept the ideas that he's sharing, or they might not like it. So with the disciples, they realize that Jesus is the king, and we can too. But are we prepared to accept what it might mean for us that he is the king? Because it's going to mean something, or it might do. We'll find out why in a moment or two. Will they accept what it means? Does what Jesus says really matter? Or is it a matter of opinion? Well, let's read how it shakes down from uh, Mark 8, uh, verse 20, uh, 28. Well, 29, really. We, let's go from 29. We're really 31, but just to get a, a bit of the, um, the context. What about you, he asks. Who do you say I am? This is to the disciples. And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the king. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Peter's the spokesperson of the group. He's the one with the biggest mouth, maybe, or the one who's willing to commit himself to say something more than the others. He said that before that Jesus is the Messiah, now he's uh, involved in this feature as well. He's in this section. And he starts arguing with Jesus. He takes him on one side. He's rather like the employee in Undercover Boss, (laughs) telling the boss that the changes he's going to make are a bad idea. You shouldn't be doing that. It's like the employee saying. Peter's saying, I don't like this, Jesus. What are, you, what are you talking about here? Dying? Suffering? It's almost like Peter thinks that Jesus' kingship, his leadership, his expertise is in an area where you could just take it or leave it. doesn't really matter. You know, like you hear sometimes on the news, an economist from some city bank comes on and tells you about the economy. Well, they're an expert. They know what they're doing. They're a leader. But it's kind of neither here nor there. Or if you watch Match of the Day and you hear the pundits or before the match or whatever, and you're just watching, it's got nothing to do with you, really. You're just watching it. And it's almost that Peter is kind of treating it rather a bit like that. The thing is that Jesus isn't that kind of leader or that kind of king where we can take it or leave it, is he? So what kind of king is Jesus? And this is what we're really thinking about now. What kind of Jesus is he? There are three kind of aspects of how Jesus is king that we see in this passage. Here's the first one. You see, Jesus is the king of God's salvation And God's victory over evil. Look at those verses from verse 31. You see, now the disciples know that Jesus is the king. Jesus wants them to know about the cross. Verse 31. He began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. It's not just a casual remark. It's not him saying, oh, by the way, you do know that you know, the Son of Man is going to suffer and I'm going to rise again from the dead. No, they're going around the north uh, of, of Palestine, the north of, uh, of Israel in Galilee. Uh, they're probably up in some mountainous areas, which is why we'll see in a moment uh, that the transfiguration takes place. And they're probably traveling around. And as they travel around, Jesus is teaching them. And he's probably been, it says he's been plainly teaching. It says he began to teach, implies that this is a theme he's talking to them about quite a lot, that the Son of Man must suffer. What's he saying? It's interesting. Those twice it says the Son of Man must suffer. Must. What is that about then? Well, it's a reference to God's purposes. The Old Testament talks about God's plan of salvation, God's plan of rescue from the very beginning. And the Old Testament, their scriptures talk not just about the king who would come and put everything right. They also talked about a servant who would come and pour out his life as an offering, who would give his life so that others might know God. That is also part of the picture. And that probably is what Jesus is also talking to them about. And it takes them, well, they don't get it. It takes them a long time. Even after the resurrection, he's telling them the same things and it's gradually kind of seeping in. So don't be discouraged if it takes you a long time uh, or it takes me a long time to learn anything in the Christian life. It does take a while sometimes. But the thing is that it was God's purpose. God's salvation was that the son of man, the king, would suffer and rise from the dead. The Son of Man, this title is used 14 times, if you're into this, 14 times in Mark's Gospel. It's only used twice in the first half and 10, uh, 12 times in the second half. It's always about Jesus' identity. We saw in the first half that the Son of Man, he says, is to be Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And now in the second half of Mark's Gospel, he, time and time again, again, he says the Son of Man will suffer. He will be uh, rise from the dead. And then he also talks about the Son of Man will come in glory. He will wind everything up as king uh, when the whole of history gets wound up. So this is kind of, this is, you know, Mark is giving us a kind of, a shorthand pointer to that Jesus is talking about something big here. He's saying, I am the king. I am God's king of salvation and rescue and victory over evil. Well, where do I get that idea from? Well, look at Peter. Here's poor old Peter. The more he hears this stuff, the more uncomfortable he is, isn't it? This isn't the king he wants. This isn't the king he's expecting. Surely it's not like that. Jesus, you, you don't, you, you've got it wrong. So he tells Jesus, you can just imagine, you know, Jesus, could you just, um, can I just have, can I just have a, a word? You know, the disciples are there and can I just have a word? And, and Peter brings Jesus over and, and starts telling him, what are you saying this for? Whatever it is, he rebukes him. And it's very interesting. Uh, it says that he, so, He says, Jesus turns and look at the disciples. It's almost like Jesus turns his back on Peter or maybe kind of literally puts him behind you. Him and says, says to all of them, get behind me, Satan. This isn't coming from you, Peter. This is coming from Satan. And we've met Satan a few times in Mark's gospel, not that many times. 
But we've seen where he's oppressed people with evil. We've seen at the temptations of Jesus that Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness by Satan. And we've seen that through the temptations that Satan's main aim was to stop Jesus going the route that God wanted for him. And Jesus sees in what Peter's saying, not Peter, but Satan trying to stop this, this whole purposes of God going forward. And so in, in kind of saying, No, Peter, you're talking from Satan. You're not talking from God's perspective. You're talking from a human perspective. And that human perspective is being influenced by evil. Get behind me. You're wrong. But it's kind of seeing that that Jesus is saying, what I'm doing here, I'm suffering. I'm going to rise again. This is God's salvation purpose. But it's also going to be the defeat of evil. How about evil being defeated in the world? That would be good, wouldn't it? Jesus says it happens through him. He's the king. He's the king. So does what Jesus say really matter? He's the king of God's salvation. If that's true, his way of rescuing the human race and fulfilling God's purposes is the only way. There's no plan B. There is only one way that evil and that that source of evil in Satan uh, and the effect it's had on the rest of us will ever be defeated. It's by Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. It's what we were singing about earlier. So if this is true, then what he says about being rescued and knowing evil defeated in our lives, really matters, doesn't it? Because he's the king of salvation and victory, the only one. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. It says in the next verse, for verse 34, as well as the disciples, and tells us a bit more about his kingship. And look at verses 34 to chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So the second kind of thing we're thinking about God's king is that Jesus is the king of God's way to life. See, Jesus in these verses makes it really clear he expects people to follow him. That's what he says. Whoever wants to, deny, uh, wants to be my disciple, it says, must follow me. If you want to be a disciple, if you want to be with this king, then you need to follow 
Verse 34 says quite clearly, if you like, Jesus is a king to be lived with. And that's what this whole kind of second half of Mark's gospel is about. What does it mean to live with this king in our lives? Because Jesus is plainly saying, I want to be with you. I want you to follow me. As I go, I want you to go with me. And for these disciples on through this gospel, they are doing that physically, literally, day by day. For us, it's not physical, it's not literal, but by his spirit, we live with him. And we're on that same road of following. And this is the first example in Mark's gospel of Jesus spelling this all out. And it's, he's going to say more about it as it goes on. But first of all, we can notice it's a really active and it's a personal thing. It says that we need, or we, if we're following, we must deny ourselves. As Peter realized, that doesn't necessarily mean flagellation or, you know, uh, really rigorous or difficult lifestyle. It might do, but it doesn't. I think it's Peter, uh, Peter had just said, hadn't he? I'd rather go, I, I, Jesus, I don't, I, I, I think you're wrong, said Peter to Jesus. And Jesus had said to him, you're thinking about your ways, not God's ways. And when Jesus says we deny ourselves, at the very least, it says, it's saying, surely, look, we're not going my way, but God's way. I don't have in mind the things of, 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 of kind of the world, but the things of God. It's about a priority. Now, that priority may mean that we literally deny ourselves of some things. But the fundamental thing is that we're saying it's his way, not my way. That's what denying yourself means, I think. You may have a different view. Be glad to hear it. We stop looking at things our way. We start seeing it God's way. We follow Jesus and he shapes our lives. Where is Jesus going to? He's just told them he's going to suffer. Later he tells them, or maybe during this process he told them it was a cross. And he says to them, if you're going to follow me, and the crowd too, it's not just the 12 disciples, you need to take up a cross. Now that's an image. You remember when Jesus went to his cross, he had to carry the the cross piece on his shoulders. And it was an image that people sadly would have seen a lot under Roman occupation when people were executed, like Jesus was. They would, as they went to their place of execution, they'd have the cross piece you know, the, the, the bit that goes uh, horizontal, at least, on their shoulders as they walked along. Someone carrying on a cross was on their way to death. Wow. That's interesting. So why would anyone in their right minds want to do that? Surely to want to die or want to give up our own life or our own priorities is against all of our instincts, isn't it? (laughs) At least the healthy instincts. No one has a healthy death wish, do they? Usually if we have that kind of death wish, we're, we're not well. We need help. So what's Jesus talking about here? Well, surely as he goes on to say, it's about relative value. Jesus is saying at the end of the day when he says, um, who wants to save their life will lose it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or their life? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's about value, relative value. What matters most? Our life here and now without Jesus, 
or our life with Jesus here and then forever. What's more important than life? Jesus is saying. And his answer is, what's better than life? Jesus himself says, I am. He's calling for that kind of priority. It's worth pondering this. Older members of our community will know this quote. There was a guy, once a guy in about the 1950s, he was age 22, and he wrote something in his diary when he was 22. And this is what he wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Remember who remember that story? He was a man called Jim Elliot. He wrote that when he was 22. So that was the way he lived his life. I'm willing to let it go for Jesus because I can't keep it anyway. And the life he gives me is eternal. And by the time he was 29, seven years later, before he reached his 30th birthday, he was murdered uh, as a missionary sharing the gospel with a tribe in uh, Latin America, I think, somewhere. Or think about this quote. It's come up to date a bit. This is Pastor Wang Yi, Chinese pastor, and his wife, Jian Rong. Uh, They lead or he led the early reign covenant church, Chengdu, in China. Large church. Not registered. It was raided, uh, I think, in 2018 initially. And 100 people in the congregation were arrested. Subsequently let go, including Jian Rong, the pastor's wife. Both were held in custody. She was released six months later. Last week, Pastor Wang Yi got nine years in prison. This is what he wrote. Before he was arrested first time, he wrote a declaration. He said, let this go on the internet. Read it out. Publish it. If I disappear for longer than 48 hours, I want people to read what I've written. And this is an extract from it. Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. This is the thing. He is my king and the king of the whole earth. Yesterday, today and forever. I am his servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God. And I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. And if you can, you can get the whole declaration on, online. And it, it's very interesting because he, he, he's saying, look, I respect the Chinese government. I, I think, you know, I love China. It's a great country. So, but Jesus matters more to me. He's my king. And so he's in prison for nine years. And he's willing to lose his life if it comes to it. So does what Jesus say really matter? Well, Jesus says it does. It matters, actually, because the majority don't want Jesus and there's pressure to be ashamed of him. He says, whoever's ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation. What does that mean? I don't think he's talking about moral behavior. He's talking to Jewish people. Uh, The whole idea of spiritual adultery was the putting other things in front of God. Uh, Jesus is saying to the disciples at the time, this generation wants, you know, doesn't want to be faithful to God. 
That's the context. They would prefer going their way. And that will mean that sometimes there is pressure for us to be ashamed of him and his words. It matters too because there is more to this life. A day will come when Jesus will honor those who have not been ashamed of him and his words. Are we going to be those people? Anyway, let's move on. A few days later, something else happens. And again, it's Peter at the center of it. Three of the twelve, Peter, James, and John, they've heard Jesus say that some of them will see the kingdom of God come in power before they die. And you know what they do. And we read about it in chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. Let's uh, read what happens. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or it could be three shrines. It could be use the word tabernacle. It's the same word from the Old Testament, which was a tent, but it was also like a mobile temple. So it could be either. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. It's an astonishing event, and it shows us that not only is Jesus the king of God's way to life, but Jesus is the king of God's glory and love. Up they go to this mountain, possibly to pray. It could have been nighttime. The other gospels say they fell asleep. So it could have been one of those times when Jesus wanted them to pray with him and they fell asleep and they woke up to see this. We don't really know. But anyway, you got the gist of it there. Jesus becomes white, shining, brighter than anything that, that could be kind of manufactured. A light emanating from him. And Moses and Elijah are there too, talking to him. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I don't know really. Lots of people have wondered what that's about. But Moses was the one who brings God's law. So the first five books of the Bible in the Jewish mind at the time were the books of Moses. Pentateuch, five books of Moses. So Moses is kind of responsible for the law in their thinking. And Elijah, of course, was the first major prophet. And he started off there. So uh, maybe we've got a situation where Jesus is in his glory and Moses representing the law and Elijah, the prophets. Maybe it's kind of shorthand for the Old, the Old Testament, God's word, as it was given previously. So there they are talking. And Peter, once again, poor old Peter, he doesn't know what to say, so he thinks he'll say something. So he pipes up. He's terrified, and you should be very careful what you say when you're terrified or what you do with it. He says, oh, Jesus, lucky we're here. (laughs) Lucky we're here. We can do something. We can make a contribution. Maybe we could put up some shelters and shrines, something to mark the place. 
and you can have one and we can yeah we're here we can make we can make stuff we're, we're you know fishermen and and stuff we could do something and a cloud comes over now when there's clouds in the bible uh remember when we did exodus remember what happened on the mountain when god was there a cloud comes over and a voice speaks from the cloud that's what happened again god in exodus speaks on the mountain from the cloud that's where the 10 words the 10 commandments we were thinking about last year come from but the 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 voice says something quite different he says this is my son the beloved i love him listen to him it's almost like god is saying what jesus said to peter earlier look do you know who this is in front of you can't you see it he is my son he you've just seen him in all his glory you've just seen him in his greatness and more than his great power i love him we love one another love is something that flows in the community of the godhead father son and spirit and i love this son of mine so listen to him please he's the only one to listen to so does what jesus say really matter well god thinks so he says so pretty clearly jesus word listen to him and jesus brings not just god's presence to us not just the glory of god being close because in the old testament you can't see god that's why it's a cloud and but you see glory which is a kind of expression of god being close and jesus brings god close into our world into our lives we honor him he's the king listen god's delight is in jesus god's love is uncontainable for jesus it's almost like the the, the living god can't resist the opportunity to declare how wonderful his son is and how much he loves him you know like at the baptism when jesus got baptized the holy spirit comes down and, and god speaks this is my beloved son i love my son i love what he's doing he's great <laughs> he's the best that's why what he says matters who he is god's son what he does bringing god to us how he sustained and nurtured in loving fellowship with his father because you see this stuff about how much the father loves the son is not of some academic interest he's not there just to say oh jesus is the son of god and god loves him because later on jesus says something really interesting to his disciples which is really quite astonishing can you read that up there these are the words of jesus in john 15 to his disciples just before he goes to the cross as the father has loved me remember what happened on the mountain as the father has loved me so have i loved you now remain in my love if you keep my commands my words does the word does his word matter you will remain in my love just as i've kept my father's commands and remain in his love i have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete put that alongside what happened at the top of that mountain 
Because those disciples are going to realize that this amazing, sustaining love for, that the Father has for the Son, Jesus, is to be theirs as well. Look at what Jesus says in John 17. He prays just before he goes to the cross. Look at verse 26. I have made you... There it is. Oh, I can use my little dotty thing. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. This is now looking on into the future after his death. Make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself will be in them. Let that sink in. We are brought as believers when we trust in Jesus we're brought into that fellowship of love. That's why denying ourselves, while it will be painful, is against that perspective as countless hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Christians have testified over the centuries as they have suffered for Jesus. So does what... Jesus say really matter? I'm tempted to do it. I can say, oh yes. <laughs> he is the king of God's glory. He's the king of God's presence. He's the king that brings us into God's love. So here's a question. Are you going to live? Am I going to live with this king? If so, his words really matter, don't they? His words about how evil is defeated and salvation comes through the cross. He's the king of salvation and victory over evil. Are you there yet? Do you know that in your life? His words about following in his way, not mine. God's perspective. Loving real life more than this life. Willing to go with the cross. He's the king of God's way to life. Are we going to live that? His words about God's glory seen in the son that God loves and the love that is flowing into our, our lives by the Holy Spirit because he's the king of love and glory. And you know, you start with Jesus. You become a Christian this way. There's another verse in John 5. Jesus says these words. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words, does the word of Jesus matter? Does what Jesus say matter? Well, Jesus said, Will you hear my word and believe him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. You become a Christian when you hear those words, when you believe, you welcome that God into your life that sent Jesus. You cross from death to life and eternal life begins right now it really does matter let's continue in worship and praise